Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, I got to call us back to our our my, some of my earliest days at Law360. Okay. Right? Oh, I right. was writing about For Loco, which... Oh, sure. Uh, oh, yeah. The Everyone Remembers was that super caffeinated beverage that was then banned by the government because mm-hmm. it was like killing college students. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of the first stories I wrote about at Law 360 was like the FDA proceedings or some, something like that. It's like a product liability yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Uh, so this weekend, I have assured my friends that I will bring a case of the new Four Loco hard seltzer. I was, I was going to say that like, <laughs> man, this is great stuff. To a party. Wait. Th- that, is, that is a party in the suburbs hanging with my friend's kid. Okay. Was this, <laughs> was this Four Loco requested or did you just offer it up? Well, people were on a group chat talking about what kind of stuff we could bring, and I suggested that I was going to bring uh, a case of Four Loco Seltzer. Oh, sure. Yeah, well, I'm sure okay. they jumped right on that. So it's it's August 22nd, uh-huh. and I can't believe it took this long. I mean, you are an active participant in the Summer of Seltzer. The Summer of Seltzer, baby. And, and, I, and I can't believe – I mean, I admire your, your restraint for waiting this long to mention on the podcast. Well, you know, I've always been such a big – I've been a big White Claw fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, – I might have to jump over to the uh, to the new to the new loco. <laughs> I mean, are, are I, we are we yeah. gonna have to check in about this and be like, how was it? Like, check in, we're like gonna a have wellness to... check on me. After yeah, that, well, that, that actually that. might be the way to go. <laughs> yeah, that, yes. it's, a, it's a cultural curiosity. <laughs> um, well, that's awesome for you. Love that for you. Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, about it, yeah. <laughs> we have we have an interesting show uh, today. We're gonna be talking to the patent reporter, our old buddy Ryan Davis, about the interesting legal questions that arise when artificial intelligence. Uh, does some inventing, uh, an, in, thought, an I thought, invention. I thought you were going to say AI does it, and then I was going to. I had a whole thing about Allen Iverson. It was going to be good. Oh, I thought you were going to say about Haley Joel Osment. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> also that, that. Also, the, the, the aborted uh, that Stanley would also Kubrick project. It worked. is a. Yeah. It is a fun. <laughs> yes, it, it is a fun talk we have yeah. with Ryan later. Um, and if you're enjoying the show and a lot of the things we're talking about, I also just want to make a little plug right up top yes. to get people to. Subscribe if you're listening and you're not already subscribed, and leave us a written review. Um, I know we say this a lot, but that's how other people find us. And if you want to hear more shows from us, we'd love to have more people on on the listening end. Yeah, uh, the podcast world is a lot like high school. You know, your it is. your 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 reputation and the things that people say about you are are currency. And so we'd uh, we'd like some like some more currency, I suppose. But yeah. Uh, let's get to the news. We should. Uh, it's been a busy few weeks for Jones Day. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest and most prestigious big law firms, um, but not in a particularly good way. Uh, they, as we have discussed on the show before, they they are facing a gender discrimination lawsuit. Yes. There was a big development in that uh, in the last week or so, and right around that same time, they were hit with a new lawsuit that echoes a lot of the sort of same same accusations against the firm. Okay. Well, let's get into some of that. Um, wh- what do we want to hit up first? Uh, well, we it, let's let's go back to the discrimination suit, the yeah. okay. gender bias case first. Um, in April, Jones Day was hit with a a class action that claimed um, it claimed a whole bunch of things, but it claimed. I mean, the the sort of pullout that a lot of people took was the that it was this fraternity like culture where men climb the ladder really quickly, but women are underpaid, women are deprived of opportunity, and then. Uh, pushed out when they, you know, when they uh, go on leave or, yeah. Or, yeah. So um, two of the attorneys in that case were named initially in the complaint, but um, uh, four of them, four of the plaintiff attorneys chose to remain anonymous, pseudonymous, as mm-hmm. Jane Doe's. Um, 
So Jones Day has spent the intervening months arguing that they should be um, that they should be unmasked. That that you know letting them stay pseudonymous doesn't it doesn't allow them to fully defend themselves against these uh, against these claims. The Doe's obviously argued that. I mean, they they are arguing that they should be able to stay anonymous. Um, yeah, that it would, for all the reasons I think that people can can imagine, it would hurt your reputation. You would, sure. you know, that it would. You'd, there's the risk of being blackballed in the industry. Yeah. That kind of stuff. The whole crux of stuff like this is when you speak up, there's you face retaliation in certain contexts and things like right. that. Yes, exactly. So the judge in the case asked uh, why, you know, for more examples of more, more reasons for why the attorney should be allowed to stay um, anonymous. And when that happened, three of the four of them said, okay, you can name us as, as plaintiffs in the case and, and move forward. But one held out and said, I, I want to remain anonymous. I want to remain a doe. Um, but this week we got a ruling that the, um, or well, sorry, last week the judge yeah. the judge denied that motion. It was a sealed order, so we don't know exactly what the judge said. But um, so rather than outing herself, rather than coming forward the way that um, you know we just said can have repercussions, the woman uh, dropped out of the case. Yeah, I mean, this really brings up sort of all of the issues we've talked about in bits and pieces on the show before, where um, it's hard enough for women to decide to bring these claims and then. Um, in the instance of this woman, I think I'd read what some of the briefing said that part of the reason she didn't want to unmask is that she was looking for a job. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's this difficult balance that I think we've talked a lot about over the last two years of that, that, you know, between like, as both of you have said that the, the, the repercussions that you face for doing this kind of stuff, you know, it, there are good reasons for why people want to stay want to stay anonymous one of which is what you yeah just said, you think you're, you're going to be marked with like the scarlet letter of like yeah. don't hire me because i'm c- going to complain about the um, i'm i'm the woman who sues her bosses like, right you know i mean that, I'm, I'm doing that in quotes by the way right yeah, i mean that's that that, that is the well, perception it's, they're it's, hoping to avoid it's surfaced in all sorts of other ways too there was that that there's now a there was the anonymous list that was online about men in the media industry that yeah. um, that's a case that I'm tracking very closely that there was about, you know, he's suing them for defamation and mm-hmm. trying to unmask them. So this issue of anonymous speech and the ability to, you know, in this case, it goes into litigating anonymously. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I kind of see how this becomes more and more thorny, though, because on the one hand, I'm predisposed to think like, oh, I totally understand why this woman didn't want to be named right. publicly in a lawsuit about this, but still wanted to vindicate her rights. But when you get into litigation, there is the basic tenet of the person you accuse should know who you are so they can mount a vigorous defense. Right, right. It's um, Yeah, it's a thing we talked about during the Kavanaugh hearings where the, yeah. the issue of of like what the posture is of the dispute when you're, you know, when you're in court, you, you, you there's certain threshold, uh, there's certain due process requirements that, that are different than in a job interview or mm-hmm. in a, you know, a, a list that's, that's a Google doc. It's it, all these different things have different ideas of when somebody can remain not anonymous and or not. It also makes me wonder about other situations in litigation where people do remain anonymous. Like, mm-hmm. could some of that be, um, sort of carried over into suits that are very, um, heightened like in, a whistleblower in suit yeah. exactly that's right. a perfect example yeah so whistleblowers often are not unmasked right. so you know there there may need to be a deeper look at how we treat these kind of cases yeah well at the very least we're going to get a closer look at jones day because the same day that all of this stuff was going down in this case um a new lawsuit was filed against the firm claiming that the firm's parental leave policies were discriminatory. Um, a married couple 
who both used to work at the firm, Mark Savignac and Julia Sheketov. Um, they were former Supreme Court clerks. They were, and then they were associates in the firm's fairly elite uh, appellate practice down in D.C. Yeah, um, that's, that's that's big time stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, they accused the firm of violating Title VII and um, the D.C. Human Rights Act, and just saying that the way that the firm allots. Uh, parental leave time uh, is discriminatory. Well, let's get into that. What exactly was the firm's um, allowance of leave or whatever? Yeah. So the firm, they afford new mothers up to 18 weeks of paid time off. Um, I think there's some hair splitting on whether or not eight eight of the weeks are disability. Um, Yeah. A lot of places do that where um, it's so that mothers who've actually physically given birth can recover exactly. from Exactly. So, but men are only the fathers are only given 10 weeks off. So, um the lawsuit that was filed this week claims that the policy quote reinforces archaic gender roles and sex-based stereotypes. Um it also said that 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 this really pushed the idea that quote men are breadwinners and women are caretakers. So, a lot yeah. Of the, yeah. Like um, so sort of through the policy you're you're de facto encouraging women to sort of stay stay away longer. Exactly. Yeah. Um and and so shortly after uh their their baby was born, um these these two so she had already left the firm, but um the the attorney Savignac, um he he emailed these roughly these arguments yes. to to the firm saying that the, the it doesn't you know that this is discriminatory. That that um, and saying that he should be given equal paid leave. Um, three days later, he was uh, fired and then refused references by the firm. Allegedly, according to the lawsuit. Right. Um, so uh, the well, what does Jones Day say in response? Because I mean, on the face of it, when you hear like he complains about the policy and then a few days later he's <laughs> yeah. fired, that yeah. sounds pretty bad. But I would imagine the firm has a different explanation. Yeah, they uh I mean they defended the policy. They said that it's it's fully consistent with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission what they've said firms and companies should do in with with this kind of policy. Um and I guess and, and then you know more to the the actual specifics of the case, uh he defended the firing of of Savignac saying that it wasn't retaliatory that um that he had quote showed poor judgment, a lack of courtesy to his colleagues, and personal immaturity before being fired. So hmm. it doesn't look great from the outset, the fact that it happened three days after this, like, right. email that, that raised all these issues. Um, yeah. Uh, but Yeah, I mean, that's, an, uh, you know, that's like you say, it's new complaint. We'll see where that goes. But it's interesting. Um, I mean, these are separate issues, but I mean, I think they, at least it's sort of, uh, if you take the, you know, the allegations as seriously as a court will... Um, you know, it, it, we, we come away with a very specific picture of Jones Day here. Yeah, I mean, some of this is uh, things we've talked about on the show before. I mean, Jones Day has a really uh, specific firm culture. And when we talked about the pay stuff before, we had an, uh, an episode we said the title was something like opaque on purpose because of the way that they don't disclose yeah. why, yeah. like who's paid what and why. Those are the two big through lines, right? The... the um this pay structure that everyone says sort of enables enables not everyone that that these people who yes. are suing Jones Day, yeah. um, it, the new case really hits on that a lot. This black box structure that right. it's um, so uh, there's that and there's also this idea of the uh, of the sort of toxic for a better word culture is is yeah. is what a lot of these allegations say that it's this you know fratty was what we said at the up top. Um, mm-hmm. There's one quote that really hammers that point that I think we can get out on. But um, it again, this is from a complaint. It's take it as you will. But 
Um, one of the firm's most prominent partners, according to the lawsuit, said, quote, what would a man do on paternal leave? Watch his wife unload the dishwasher? So That's it's not great. Gross. It's, it's not great. Yeah, well, I mean, those are interesting cases that, I mean, if they, if they you know, gain traction, are going to present some interesting questions. Uh, what I have for us is uh, purely, of, uh, purely a bit of interesting gossip uh, from the D.C. judiciary. Um, I like that we're transitioning to something a little lighter. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The goss. Well, there's like a serious sort of underlying issue here, but it began, um, let's, just, let's just say this. So it began with a reply all, an, an, an errant reply all email, uh, which is how all great uh, office squabbles begin. I think that's accurate, yeah. You know, a lot of things can happen. You know, you can, you can inundate your colleagues with unnecessary uh, messages. You could muck up the details of planning some kind of outing or event. Or, in the case of what happened uh, uh, earlier this summer with a couple of D.C. judges, uh, you might out yourself as a potential climate change skeptic and call into question the ethics of one of your fellow judges. Wow, that's a really uh, hefty way to mess up reply all emails. So what happened exactly? So this all came from uh, a report in the Washington Post, exclusive report in the Post on Friday. And it began with a very simple email, which was sent on July 3rd by a district judge in D.C. named Emmett G. Sullivan. Sullivan was just forwarding to his fellow judges uh, an event that was hosted by the Environmental Law Center. And it was uh, meant to educate judges on climate change as issues related to climate change sort of become a more lively issue for courts to examine. Um, And with it, he just like like I say, he just he forwards the email to to a bunch of these uh, judges and he says uh, uh, there's sort of a harmless message that accompanies it. And it says, colleagues, just FYI, no need to respond to me. And uh, he he, classic try during a when you're sending something to a mass of people to try to get them not to just just, start to to reply. I'm just I'm I'm bringing your attention to it. Worth also noting here that the event in question hosted by the, the Environmental Law Institute was. Um, it had the support of the Federal Judicial Center, which is a formal research arm of the of the judiciary. It wasn't okay. some some thing he heard about, you know, on his like you know yeah, condo like cork thing. board. I, uh, you know, I was led to believe that this segment would be full of the tea. Yes, uh, and I, and I, I don't know if I've gotten any yet. <laughs> okay, well here's where the tea comes in. We begin sort of a simple email to a bunch of people, and then again, according to the a bunch of judges, not just people, um, according to the Post. Uh, the message really seemed to irk, uh, bother a, a D.C. circuit judge uh, named Arthur Randolph, who hit reply all and basically proceeded to read Judge Sullivan, who sent the message, uh, the riot act. He uh, suggested that his interest in, a cli- in, in climate change might present some kind of ethical violation that might require some kind of formal inquiry from the bench. Uh, really, really weird stuff. These are some of the quotes from his, again, his reply all emails, so to a bunch of D.C. judges that were on the thing. The jurisdiction assigned to you does not include saving the planet. Get out of this business and back to the business of judging, which is what you are being paid to do. Hmm. Uh, he, 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 he continued later, referencing the, the seminar that was the subject of the email. The supposed science and stuff that you are now sponsoring is nothing of the sort. So he's clearly you know, dubious um, of some of the stuff that, uh, of, of, the, of the content of this, of this seminar. That, that seems like a really heavy response for what, on the face of it, appears to be just a casual forwarding of some information. Yeah. I don't know. The t- I mean, the tone I kind of want to 
emulate in our office when people send oh, reply great. all Oh, I can't emails. wait for this. Um, <laughs> actually, sidebar, I don't mind reply all uh, apocalypses when they happen. I find it entertaining. Uh, oh, I find it funny when people so start losing their tempers and then like they say don't reply all and then everyone's saying don't reply. I, I'm an agent of chaos. <laughs> anyway, um, so it goes on. It wasn't just that he took issue with um, this climate conference thing. Okay. Um, he kind of, again, this is the, the circuit judge, Randolph, um, suggested that he had some other beef uh, with Sullivan. Um, he basically said this is many of your latest public displays and that the email that he sent, quote, crossed a line. He ended it with by saying, should I report you? I don't know. <laughs> so a vague threat, a vague sort of professional threat. I mean, this really pulls back the curtain on judges in such a petty way. I mean, Definitely. usually you just think of them as being, you know, these learned people who are making these but big instead, decisions. Instead, they're just like like your weird uncles arguing on Facebook. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> Over that. Over chain emails. This yeah. is like early internet yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So... We we don't have a lot to it's it's quite a quite a episode here. The post said uh, that Sullivan kind of immediately clarified that he's not trying to make some kind of offensive political statement to anybody. He's just notifying the colleagues of an event that they might find interesting. That again right. is sort of under the umbrella of the of the judiciary itself. The research arm of the judiciary was it was like sponsoring the event or supporting the event. Um, we don't have there's there's nothing sort of public in terms of like the the fallout here. The the post again reported that Sullivan requested an opinion from the ethics board that basically would ask that basically asked whether Randolph should be recused from um, cases that involve climate change, given mm. what he expressed in the email. Or because uh, keep in mind that Sullivan is a is a district court judge and yeah. Randolph is um, an appellate judge. Or whether since he appears to have all these problems with him, whether he shouldn't be allowed to hear his appeals anymore. Um, we don't know. All, all, all that's come out is this is this post story. Um, but uh, worth noting that uh, Jimmy Hoover, who wrote the story for us, um, noted that Randolph was slated to hear arguments in September um, regarding the EPA's roll, rollback of Obama administration era greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Okay. And he was taken off the case on Tuesday without notice. Well, it's, it's, you know, we've talked about it a bunch that the standard for recusals in situations like this is not like provable bias. It's right. the it's, appearance of yes. bias. So, yes. you know, it's not, it's, it, that seems like a situation where these judges would, would no longer be involved in those kind of cases. Yeah. So maybe we'll, we'll get some clarity on that. Um, if some kind of formal rebuke is made or something like that. Um, but you know, I think it speaks to, we've talked about before when judges sort of exhibit some, some, I don't know, colorful comments or something is like, these aren't, these are, these aren't robots. These are people who hear cases and think things, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, they are not robots, but there are robots in the world. Yeah, and, and we're going to get uh, to that and we're, next. And we're going to talk about that now and how uh, and how innovative they are. Law360.com. It's a great website. It's true. If you want to have some hard-hitting legal news or if, say you want to listen to a really good podcast. Great, in fact. But did you know that you can also come here to advance your legal career? You can come here and find your next gig in the legal industry. Yeah, we have a job board. And so if you're an associate, a paralegal, um, a partner, and you're looking for a new job, you can head over to jobs.law360.com. 
And that applies not only to people seeking jobs, but of course, if you are a partner, if you are a hiring manager and you're looking to bring some new blood into your firm, the people that you're looking for are coming to our website. You can reach out to them on the job board. Again, that's jobs.law360.com. And for employers out there, uh, feel free to use the promo code PROSAY, P-R-O-S-A-Y, for 25% off your listing. Again, that's PROSAY, the promo code P-R-O-S-A-Y. A team from a British university has filed the first patent applications on devices they say were invented by artificial intelligence. It sounds like a scene from a science fiction movie. The computers are inventors, but it's becoming a reality that could have a big impact on the law. Let's talk about one of my favorite topics, patents, with one of my favorite reporters, Ryan Davis. Hello. It's so good to have you back on the show, especially for a fun one. Yep, thanks for having me. We got the we got the computers uh, inventing a longer lasting light bulb or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I want to get into it. So, what were the patents that we're talking about here that AI allegedly um, invented? Uh, so, this lab at the University of Surrey in England um, has a uh, artificial intelligence machine that they called. Dabus. I don't remember what it stands for. Um, but uh, they claim that it has invented two things. One is an interlocking beverage container that's apparently easier okay. to pick up. And one is uh, a flashing beacon the, that their idea is you would use it in search and rescue rescue missions. And it would be flashing at a frequency, I guess, that's easier for humans to, to see in the distance. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so we have the people from the university then decided they were going to file patent applications on behalf of the machine. Is that what happened? Right. I mean, they claim that the, the machine came up with these ideas on its own. They fed it information about these the fields right. of beverage containers and flashing lights, I guess. And the, the machine took it from there and came up with uh, with these new uh, inventions, uh, the the lab filed the patent applications and listed the AI machine as the sole inventor, uh, and that raises questions that I think a lot of attorneys thought we might not have to grapple with for some time about whether. Uh, a non-human machine can be an inventor. Yeah, well, and let's get into some of those questions. Um, I mean, you had mentioned. I mean, the the process. We don't want to get too wonky on this stuff, but the process for how the machine like learned the thing, or like you know, took in the information that they gave it, and then spit out this cool new beverage container and uh, <laughs> right. search and rescue device is kind of integral to these like patent questions. So. At a at a very basic level, do we think these are going to get approved? I mean, does an invention at a basic level, does an invention have to be created by a human to get patent protection? I mean, it seems like it does. I mean, there's never really been a test case like this in patent law. Yeah. Um, there's been something sort of analogous in, in copyright law. Oh, Ryan, I love how you're setting me up there because you know I want to talk about this. All of our listeners will probably remember that I love Naruto, the selfie-taking monkey, and that's a copyright issue. But it's the same kind of thing. Like, can an animal have a copyright is kind of analogous here. Right. I mean, the court in that case said that animals can't own copyrights because they're not humans. Right. Um, I'm sure the the wording in the act, the statutes is somewhat different in, in patent law, but in, in patents, it says, in the U.S. at least, it refers to the inventor as an individual um, and that 
can that be a machine? We right. Don't really Are know. you trying to strip away the individuality of Dabas? Because I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's that's a that's a road I don't know if we want to go down. Well, guys. I mean, and right. it's more than that, right? Like uh, the actual inventor has to make a bunch of attestations about yeah. things in their patent application. Right. And you can't really do that if you're a computer. Yeah, this was certain something that I asked attorneys about, and they're sort of baffled as to how this could be because the inventor has to like sign an oath and declaration that right. says I came up with this under penalty of perjury. Right. And it's I mean, really I guess clear. we just assume that the computer's truthful. And <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm not yeah, I haven't actually seen the filed application, yeah. so I don't know like how, how they, they got pulled, around that. How yeah. they pulled that off. But I mean, the thinking is that these are not going to get approved. Uh, and then the patent office will say either just reject them on other grounds, say that these are not, you know, patentable inventions for right. some yeah. other reason, or uh, say that they come out with a blanket statement like an inventor has to be a human. Uh, and that would raise the question of, do we want to do that? Um, well, I'd like to talk about why we would or wouldn't. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like, like you said, this will probably get rejected because of the way the statute's currently written. So mm-hmm. should we just change the statute? Should we decide, like, it's a more technological world, this is going to happen more and more, maybe we want to be able to issue patents on this kind of stuff? Right. It's an interesting question because there's something i feel like as humans <laughs> that we resist in like letting giving machines legal rights to, to do yeah. anything um and the argument i guess in favor of it is that artificial intelligence is going to be doing is you know the wave of the future it's going to be coming up with all sorts of uh inventions and ways to do things that we can't with our feeble human minds uh, conceive of. Uh, and if those inventions can't be patented, then there's a, not an incentive for the people that, you know, own right. the AI labs I, to do this research. I mean, part of the way you make money on your research is that you end up with a patentable thing that you can protect from other people stealing your great idea. Right. And the idea is that if, um, you know, the just by virtue of the fact that the invention was came come up with by a machine, it can't be patented, and then it's you know a strong disincentive incentive to you know to to come up with these inventions. Yeah, I mean, and again, I mean, I the thing I, when I was reading about this, and a really interesting story, I would encourage everyone to read it if you haven't. It was the the idea of you know a per, a, a human being sort of like Dabas is like a learning tool or something, right? Or it's right. like a like a creation tool, and so like. It raises a question about like how, like how far at arm's length are you the inventor from the thing that you invented? If like mm-hmm. like you know your my creation made a creation, that's the whole point. It's like a Russian nesting doll. Right. It's not like it's, it's not like the, like the robot sat around and was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna invent a, yeah. a, a can opener that combs your have, hair or something. Right, right. Yeah. Right. It had to have inputs. I mean, I guess the there's all these different ways that you know. Congress could amend the patent statute yeah. in a lot of different ways. That's, right? that's what I'm thinking. That's why I'm not just musing for my own sake. I'm just like, I I'm, I'm not trying to write legislation as we're sitting here in the booth, but like, you know, some instrumentality yeah. that I am responsible for has taken responsibility for a new thing. I mean, you can see a couple different ways it might go. Um, but Ryan, do we have any, ch- I mean, do we have reason to, I mean, you talked about the sort of rapid acceleration of AIs and machine learning, you know, trained algorithms and, th- and things like that. But do we have a Do we have a sense? You talked about these couple of patent applications that have been filed. Do we think there will be more? Um, and if so, is that uh, you know what does that mean for the human race as it uh, right. continues to try to innovate? Yeah, I mean, I think whether or not there'll be more will have to will kind of depend on on what happens with th- these two. Yeah, um, 
I mean, if they're rejected, I imagine it would start some sort of debate in Congress. The director of the U.S. Patent Office has talked about this in speeches and, oh, and conferences. That this What's is his take on it? Uh, I mean, I don't think he has a take necessarily. He said, like, this is something that we're going to have to, to oh, think about. Okay. Right. Yeah, what, yeah. He's what acknowledged gonna, yeah. that it's a, a, a thing that's going to confront the agency. Right. Yeah. Okay, so the patent office knows this is going to be a continuing issue they have to confront. And we sort of talked about why companies would want AI to be able to get these patents. But why do we want to maybe prevent it? Is there a counter argument here? Yeah, I think the counter argument is that, you know, the purpose of the patent system is to promote the progress of science and the useful arts, I think, are the, the words from the Constitution. Uh, and the idea, the argument against it would be that, you know, computers don't really need this, the incentive of a patent to do this, to, to invent things. Um, they're just doing what they're programmed to do. Right. Um, so there's something like counterintuitive or against the purpose of the patent system to to. To yeah, award I mean, patents for that. I, I hmm. get that argument, that sort of like core thing of like what are patents for and who are we trying to incentivize? But could we also see a thing where let's assume um, Congress does amend things and they allow AI to have patents. Is there a future where humans can't come up with the novel things before the machines do? So then there's no human inventors anymore uh, on, on patent applications? Yeah, that that is kind of an interesting scientific uh, science fiction scenario. of. And yet it seems so real in this conversation. Because, right. I mean, you could just think of the idea of, like, you're, in fe- you're inputting all these things, saying, like, figure out this problem. Obviously, the machines are going to figure it out faster than people can, I would presume. Right. Yeah, I mean, you're like, that, hey, you know. chappy, clip my yeah. nails with your uh, cool uh, automated nail clipper or something. Yeah, right. I mean, if the if the machine can come up with a million inventions a second or whatever mm-hmm. fantastical number, and they can of, also like simultaneously check to see if they're all novel ideas. Like they can sort right. of bypass some of the things human inventors have to take more time to figure out right and then when the human shows up at the patent office they can just say well ai invented this two years ago so you, you don't get a patent on it and that's part of the concern <laughs> ryan i feel like your beat is going to change a lot depending on what happens with these first two applications right yeah it's a it's a brave new world of <laughs> yeah uh, i i for one welcome our patent vulturing overlord <laughs> <laughs> you know you? he's putting that on record now <laughs> on audio so that the machines hear it later when yeah. they take over the universe and alex is in the clear yeah well we'll deal with that later <laughs> thanks right. for joining us ryan sure anytime We like to end our show with something offbeat, and I think, Alex, you're going to take point on a story for us today. You know, it's almost football season. Uh, you oh, know, no. football. The grass is freshly cut. Uh, the plastic, the the, 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 the pads are like, crashing together. I feel like you're doing an Obama right now. <laughs> you always say that. <laughs> it's almost football season. <laughs> you, yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, it's been quite a, a eventful offseason for uh, Raiders wide receiver Antonio Brown. Now, we won't bore you with the details here, Amber, but he's a wide receiver. I even know who Antonio Brown is. Yeah. So this is great. Wow. Uh, well, he's been, he, he hurt himself. Uh, he hurt his feet. And then in, in, in the process of treating his feet with cryo 
physiotherapy. He got frostbite on his feet. And then, so wild. And then there were headlines that he was going to have to get a foot circumcision. <laughs> no, no one was quite sure what that meant. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, and then now and then he got in a protracted uh, dispute with the Raiders about uh, his helmet. He was wearing an uh, old model. I knew of that helmet. he like had painted over an helmet old gate. helmet or something. Yeah. Um, and that recently resolved itself, but it went on for like weeks yeah. where he was like trying to find an old helmet that would pass. They don't have anything standards. else to write about. They don't. Um, well, I got something to write about this week because he, uh, Antonio Brown got sued by a uh, personal chef named Stefano Tedeschi, who claimed that Brown had stiffed him on a on a on a on a gig after he had had prepared a a, a meal for him and his friends uh, last year, uh, sued him for thirty eight thousand dollars. And uh, it's a very strange case, and you know the the, the usual caveats of alleged in a complaint yeah. apply uh-huh, here because sure. this is going to get really weird. I don't want Stefano to... Stefano Tedeschi sounds like a kicker, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, so far this just sounds like a regular old lawsuit, though. Yeah, you know, yeah, whatever. You, these guys hire a lot of vendors. Maybe mm-hmm. they feel they got stiffed, whatever. But so the 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 situation was this allegedly. Um, Brown had been hosting some friends in Florida for the uh, the occasion of the Pro Bowl. This is the NFL's version of the All-Star game mm-hmm. at the end of the year uh, in Florida. And he was hosting some friends at a house in Florida they had rented. And he hired Tedeschi to prepare a meal for them. He's a private chef. And he came over and he cooked some food for them. Cooked fish. It was salmon, actually. After he was done, Tedeschi apparently left the fish head. He brought over like a whole cut of fish. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he left the head in the freezer to use uh, to make soup. <laughs> To make a stock. <laughs> to make a stock. I mean, anybody sure. who's ever made a homemade stock knows you know, right. that's that's the best way to do it. You know, yeah. you keep the fresh iron, you throw in the stock, and you go to town. So, the problem with this is that Antonio Brown and his friends came upon this, the fish head in the freezer, mm-hmm. and thought it was some kind of mob threat. <laughs> what? On on par of uh, you know the Godfather and that the, was a horse head. It was a horse head. Well, in a in a bit. In a in a bet, totally different situation. Also, later on, the fish they deliver the fish after Luca Brasi is murdered. So he's kind of mixing two oh, different right. mafia metaphors sure. after Luca Brasi's because he sleeps with the fishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, they freak out. They kick the chef out of the house. I I love that that this happened while the chef was still there. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I, why yeah. didn't they just ask? This him? is not really fleshed out. Yeah, <laughs> excuse me, was this a a, a very detailed analogy for well, something? And this is I why. Mean, also, isn't this kind of terrible too? Because I think that the chef in question is of Italian descent. So it's got a lot of like overtones of like, do you think every Italian person you meet wow. is like in the mafia? I wow. didn't even think that, Amber. But I mean, I mean, Amber lives in North Jersey. I mean, that's what, true. I mean <laughs> you know. Okay, so I mean anyway. a lot about people of Italian descent. That's true. Um, so they freak out. They kick him out. They don't pay him. They don't even return his cooking equipment. And he sued them uh, uh, in, in in local court uh, this week for 30, I mean, 38 grand. Which I don't know. Right. I don't know what his fee is. I'm sure there's some kind of damages there or something i don't know but uh and depending on what equipment you left behind too i guess like that stuff can get pricey the minute you start getting kicked like like wronged by a bunch of like extremely highly paid nfl players you're like this is good for me yeah like i'm I'm gonna contact an attorney promptly i will say that i first heard about this in the venable uh, outlet of tmz so (laughs) i saw the chef Talking about the incident, I thought when uh, I thought you said Venable, like the law firm. Yeah, I, I was so I was like, like, wait, did Venable do a client alert about this? Uh, yeah. That would be so great. Or like Venable. TM- yeah. TMZ has like a very, very specific Venable uh, vertical. Right. Yeah, you wow. know, it's important. Of... No, but I mean, it is. <laughs> do you mean, cra- don't, don't mean to do to, to besmirch the good people over at Venable. Yeah. <laughs> it is crazy though to think like uh, you know 
the chef then immediately goes on TMZ to talk about it. And yeah, sure. quite a character. Um, but yeah, I mean, you got to get the chef to sign an NDA. Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, but, anyways, but your yeah. NDA is probably not valid if you don't get paid. Yeah, uh, I don't know how this is going to shake out, but the uh, the, the it, it was it was it, it's the summer of seltzer, and it's also the summer of headaches for for, for Antonio Brown. So uh, that, 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 that's that, that's where we're at. That seems like a good place to end this this summer show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Ryan Davis, and contributing reporters, Jimmy Hoover and Braden Campbell. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. Our show is available on all the major podcast platforms, and like we said at the top of the show, we'd love it if you subscribe and also leave us a written review. It helps other people find us. Thanks, and see you again next week.